Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5, if you're new with us or if you're a returning guest, we, we do have Bibles in the back. We want you to go ahead and stand up and grab one of those. We want to make sure you've got God's Word in your hand. And as you do that, let me, um, let me review from last Sunday. We did something a little bit different, didn't we? Uh, we've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and, and we usually take a, a short section of His Sermon, and we, we uh, study it verse by verse. And, and we do that so we can apply it to our lives, and we can share it with others throughout the rest of the week. But as I was studying this particular passage, I noticed that Jesus does something staggering here for the rest of the chapter. And what's staggering is the scrutiny of God. The probing, the inquiring, the investigation of how we are to keep His laws perfectly. What's shocking is God's unhurried, His deliberate examination of our our lives morally. So what's incomprehensible to us, really what's laughable to us at times, is indeed the moral standards that are set forth in God's commands. Jesus addresses six specific issues here in our upcoming text. We're going to talk about murder today. Uh, We're going to talk about adultery and and divorce and truth and making promises and how to love our enemies. Um, Very serious topics. And, you know, there is a, a real danger here in reading God's word haphazardly. If we just skim through the rest of, of Matthew chapter 5, we may actually think or even try to uphold these standards that Jesus places before us. So dear friends, please know that God's laws, they were never created for us to keep. They were created so that we would realize our own sinfulness. We would realize our own depravity standing before a holy God. So today's text is going to prove that, I think, beyond the shadow of a doubt. Um, These six issues that Jesus discusses really are symptoms of a much larger problem. And if we don't address the real problem, we'll never get to the real solution. So we talked about the problem and the solution last week with that general overview. And And the problem that we all have is called sin. Last week we said that sin is to ignore and defy God's law. Sin is to ignore and defy God's law. You may have heard sin defined as missing the mark, missing the mark of perfection, great definition there. Sin is a total disregard for who God is. We learned the history of sin in Genesis chapter 3. We studied how original sin impacts uh, impacts us today. 
And then we also looked at our own personal sin. And I, I wanted to take the time last week to touch on, on that, what's called the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man. Because if we don't understand the sinfulness of sin, man, we're just going to read this text today and just roll our eyes. Because we're not, we're not going to understand this perfect standard that Jesus is setting before us. We're going to think that Jesus is just this old-fashioned prude. Um, how do you get into heaven? We keep asking that question. How do you get into heaven? The answer is perfection. You must be born perfect and then not even think about committing sin. Otherwise, you're going to need a Savior who has come from heaven to help get you there. So it's imperative here to see today's text through the eyes of God. It's vital for us to see the standard of a holy God compared to this watered-down morality of a sinful man that we all have. So today's topic is a heavy one. We're going to be talking about murder. We're going to be talking about anger that leads to murder. Jesus is going to teach us straight from the Ten Commandments today. This passage really is one of the most important texts regarding the sanctity of human life. How so? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So, if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, well, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. So looking at verse 21 here, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That phrase there, you have heard that it was said, um, Jesus is using, a, he's referencing what's called the halakha. And the halakha means the walk. It's, it's referring to the oral traditions of the rabbis. These oral traditions come from the false belief that, that God revealed the Torah in both an oral and written form. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the Pharisees called this, this oral and the written form of the Torah, the dual Torah. So every Jew would have understood what Jesus is doing here, this, this formula that he's using. Um, and what Jesus is doing, he's using the same formula that they use to correct the Pharisees' false teachings. 
uh, regarding murder here. So he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So in verses 21 through 48, over the next six or seven weeks, um, as we go through this, Jesus is going to teach the true meaning of God's law. Jesus is correcting the scribes and the Pharisees. They have a superficial interpretation of his word. So we had an overview last Sunday. Uh, today, Jesus gets painfully specific. Let's take a look here. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. All right. Before we get to the specifics of this verse, I think it's, it's important to have some history of murder itself. Um, God prohibits murder in the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13. He says, do not murder. That's pretty simple. Three words. And some people say that memorizing scripture is a pretty hard thing to do. <laughs> I think we can get this one, right? As a side note, Exodus 20 has nothing to do with self-defense. It has nothing to do with going to war to protect your country. God is referring to premeditated murder. And under Old Testament law, murder carried the death penalty. We see this in Numbers 35, 31. You are not to accept a ransom. You're not to accept money or a bribe for the life of someone who is guilty of murder. Why? Because he must be put to death. But you know what? Even before the Ten Commandments, God deals with murder. Because man's first crime was a homicide. Genesis 4.8, Cain and Abel. Cain said to his brother, hey man, let's go out into the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? And then God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from me from the ground. So shortly after this first homicide, God bans murder right after the flood in Genesis 9. I think it's really important that we understand that the flood was a judgment on sin. But God says to Noah in Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But believe it or not, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah, it's not the first time that we learn about murder. To learn about the first murderer, we must actually fast forward from Genesis to Jesus. Because Jesus gives us a peek behind the spiritual curtain. Because these things are not necessarily in chronological order here. In John's gospel, Jesus is correcting the scribes and the Pharisees once again. He's correcting their doctrine. And he says this in John 8, 44. He says, you are of the father, the devil. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> and, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And then he says this. He says, he, Satan, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So as we see here, murder has been a constant part of human society from the very beginning of time. As a country... We average 70 murders per day. That's around 25,000 murders per year. And those are, you know, those are the murders that we just know about. 
Now keep in mind those murders don't take into account suicides and abortions. Unfortunately, we have been so desensitized to murder with murders becoming so common that unless the murder itself is really bizarre or it involves a group of people or maybe includes a famous person, they're not going to make the news. So back to verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Judgment is creases in the Greek. Uh, the way the scribes and the Pharisees taught the consequence of, of murder is that it was a legal decision by a local court. So in other words, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't worried about God and his judgment. They were only worried about the here and now. They were worried about being punished by the local court. So let's put this verse all back together now. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now, everybody, Jesus is preaching this to the disciples. There's a crowd listening as well, and everybody's probably shaking their heads right now in agreement. They're going, amen. Preach it, Rabbi. Amen. You stick it to those murderers, those no good murderers. You give it to them. And then Jesus says this in verse 22. He says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Uh-oh. That's probably going to cause a church split. That's some, that's some wonky doctrine right there, Jesus. If you have the NASB, the NASB, it's translated, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So can you imagine the disciples in this crowd listening and all of a sudden they just, everything gets silent. It's like the air gets sucked right off the mountain where Jesus is teaching from. Everybody starts to get a little lump in their throat. They can't swallow. Chest tightens up. They get dry mouth. Why? Jesus says, but I tell you. I tell you. So time out. Who cares what you have to tell us, Jesus? Who cares what, what you say? I mean, who are you? And who are you to tell me what to do and what not to do? See, if Jesus is simply a, a rabbi... So what? Rabbis and preachers, man, those guys are a dime a dozen. I'll just start listening to another rabbi who preaches what I want to hear. That's, that's how that works, right? But if Jesus, if Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus is the word who became flesh and now is living among the people, his statement changes everything. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect expositor of the text. He is the perfect interpreter of the law. We learned several weeks ago how Jesus is the Old Testament. He is on nearly every page within the, the Old Testament. 
Everything points to him. All the symbols, all the laws. He himself said, I am the law. I'm come to fulfill the law. I didn't come to, to tear it down. It's his law, which means he is also the judge of his law. He's the one that gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in the first place. Back to verse 22, he says, but I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. If you have the King James Version, if you have the New King James Version, you're going to notice that phrase there, without cause. That's an unfortunate translation. That's not in most Greek uh, manuscripts there. And if we think about it, there's always a cause for our anger. Whether it's justified or unjustified, there's always a cause. Anger is orizo in the Greek. Orizo is an anger that broods. It simmers. It, 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 we get to the point in our lives to where we're on the verge of boiling. It's a kind of anger that we can't let go of. It's like we're holding a grudge. This, it, it makes us bitter. We, we refuse to forgive. It's the type of anger that doesn't care anymore. We don't want to be reconciled. Why? Because we want that person to pay for what they did. So we know what anger is, right? We've all been angry. We're all guilty of this sin. Now let's see the fruits of it. Verse 22. I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Most English translations say will be or shall be. No translations say, eh, maybe. You may be subject to judgment. You, you could be guilty. No English translation uh, says that. No manuscript says that. So in other words, there will be a determination and a conviction on our anger. The Apostle John clears up any confusion we have on this. 1 John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So why are we still guilty? If we, if we didn't physically do anything wrong. The reason we're guilty is because that first step in murder is anger. All we need now is the opportunity. Now, there is obviously a difference between murder and anger. One is a physical crime and one is a spiritual crime. But the one thing that we need to know is that they are both sin. Brings us to our first key point. The law against murder also prohibits potential murder. The law against murder also prohibits potential murder. So in other words, what is prohibited by the law is not only the actual killing of a human being, but the thoughts and the anger and the hate that happens to us beforehand. So back to verse 22. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So Jesus now gives us some real world application here, doesn't he? He says, whoever insults his brother or sister, insults is rakah in the Greek. If you've got the NIV or the New King James Version, it's translated there as rakah. 
Uh, Raka is kind of this quasi-swear word in Aramaic. Uh, Raka is, it's tough to translate it into English. The expression probably means something like stupid. You're calling somebody stupid. It's also been translated as idiot, worthless, empty-headed, blockhead. (laughs) All that to say that this is not a kind word. And that's why Jesus uses this as an example. It's a word of arrogance and disgust for another human being. So let's continue here. He says in verse uh, 22, he says, Whoever says, you fool, will be subject, you will be guilty of hellfire. Fool in Greek is moros. We get our English word moron from it. Moros expresses contempt for somebody's character. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? If the word stupid, rika, insults the brains, then fool, moros, impacts the heart. And combined, what happens, they imply that a person is worthless. A person, by the way, who is made in the very image of God. And this is a major, major point we don't want to miss in this text. Who are we? to insult another person who is made in the image of God. To call someone a fool, was it's to accuse them of being both stupid and godless. So we see Jesus using a progression of severity here as he preaches. So let's pause and let's feel the weight of this. Let's look at verse 22 again. Whoever insults his brother or sister, you call somebody stupid, will be subject to the court. You're going to be guilty for that. Whoever says you fool, you undermine their character, you are going to be subject to hell. You're going to be guilty of hell. So time out. How many times have you called somebody stupid? How many times have you at least thought about it? How many times have you even thought about thinking about it? When's the last time you yelled at the television? Or maybe you gave a certain driver a certain hand signal on the way to church. I'm just asking. (laughs) If you want to know what fools do and how they act... Um, The book of Proverbs is so good, so good. The the book of Proverbs talks about fools 61 times. I want to show you three examples. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline, excuse me. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs also teaches about how fools and anger, those two things are connected. Those two things are two sides of the same coin. Proverbs 14, 16, a wise person is cautious 
and turns away from evil, but a fool is easily angered and careless. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger. A wise person holds it in check. Hmm. So the question becomes, who's the real fool here? Is the real fool the person that I'm calling foolish, or is it me because I lack the self-control for my own anger? What are the consequences of this? Verse 22, Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, will be subject, you will be guilty of hellfire. So in other words, the consequences of calling people names is death. The Lord is not just thinking of physical death, but of eternal death here. Not just hell, a fiery hell. (laughs) And we think, all right, hang on. Come on, Dustin, really? We think calling somebody a name is not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And it certainly isn't going to send me to hell. Says you. That's not what Jesus says, guys. Think about this. Moral perfection is how Adam and Eve were created. And just because sin entered the picture doesn't mean that that God, His standard has been lowered. God didn't lower the bar for us just to be able to hop over it. Guys, God does not wink at sin. In a human court, the only thing that a a criminal can be punished for is his lawless behavior. Because the judge, the jury, they can't see his heart. But in God's court, God sees everything. God sees the heart. He sees our motives. He sees our agendas. So God not only sees the murderous act, but also the angry thought. And that brings us to key point number two. Anger is sinful even if it never leads to action. Anger is sinful even if it never leads to action. So this command, do not murder, it seems so simple, doesn't it? I've never murdered anybody. I'm not perfect, but you know, I've never murdered anybody. How many times have we heard that? I'm a good person. Why? Because I've never murdered anybody. As if physically murdering somebody is the standard to get ourselves into heaven. Even murderers compare themselves to other murderers. Jesus says, but I say to you. You guys see the scrutiny of Almighty God in this? We're all guilty. Every single one of us harbors anger at some level. None of us love our neighbor as we should. All of us are guilty before a holy God because of the anger that's in our hearts. So we're all on the same playing field here. And we know this to be true because of what we say about others. If our conscience doesn't convict us, our tongues certainly will. James 3, 9 With the tongue, we bless the Father, 
We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we also curse people who are made in, the, who are made in God's likeness. Did you know that politicians were also made in the likeness of God? That's just a freebie for you. Verse 10, blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. James says, my brothers, he's pleading with us. My my brothers and my sisters, these things should not be this way. See, today's text, it proves that no one has or ever will arrive spiritually. There's always sin for us to confess, but there is good news. So I had to give you the bad news before I can give you the good. It'd be a complete downer to, leave, to just, amen, right now, right? We're all guilty, and we are. But that leads us to, okay, who, where's the solution? Key point number three. Jesus is not only the lawgiver, but he's the redeemer. Jesus is not only the lawgiver, but he's the redeemer. This same Jesus who gives these commands is also the same one who fulfills them on our behalf. As sinful people, or as sinful people were murdering Jesus and they were nailing him to a Roman cross, Jesus doesn't lash out. Jesus doesn't get angry. Instead, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So the question becomes, all right, how do we receive this kind of forgiveness? How are we forgiven for our acts of anger, our thoughts of anger, our, the words of anger, calling people names? Well, it starts with confession. It starts with crying out to a holy God and and telling him that you know you've been angry. You know that you've been calling people names. And now, prayerfully, you know the severity of that sin. And Jesus tells us that how Jesus will show us how much more we need him when we start confessing our sins like that. So when you do confess your sin, something amazing happens. God's holy and righteous anger towards you has also been extinguished. And I say that because we have to understand that, that God is also angry, but he's angry at sin. It's called propitiation. And that 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 sin must be satisfied. And what Jesus did is he endured the wrath of God. For your anger, your sins have been spiritually transferred to him. They have been imputed to him, but it doesn't stop there, guys. His his beauty, his perfection, his righteousness, his holiness has also been transferred over to us, imputed over to us. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. This is how you're forgiven from your anger. Now, if you've done that, 
and you're a disciple of Jesus, I want to leave you with, with four sources of anger that you, you now need to be aware of. Even though your anger has been forgiven, we still struggle with anger. And there's an awareness here that is really, really helpful. An awareness, when you, when you take your anger to the Lord, when you pray about your anger, He's going to walk with you through this journey. And believe it or not, He will help you curb your anger. He will help you extinguish your anger. I'm going to ask the band to come back up as I finish here. We'll get ready for the Lord's Supper. The first reason, the, the source of anger, is personal hurt and pain. So in other words, your, your heart is wounded. You've got a wounded heart. So when you experience rejection, when you experience emotional pain of some kind, anger can be a protective wall, and, and what it does is it keeps people away from you. Right? I don't want to be hurt again, so I'm going to keep my arm out like this. I don't want to be in pain anymore, so I'm just going to keep everything away. The sons of Jacob in Genesis chapter 37, great example of that. So the first source of anger is personal hurt and pain. Number two is injustice. Your rights have been violated. We all have a, a knowledge, a general knowledge of right and wrong, what's fair and what's unfair what's just and unjust. And when you perceive an injustice to you, when you see an injustice to other people, especially the people that you love, you may feel angry. And if you hold on to this offense, it becomes unresolved anger. And that unresolved anger can take root in your heart. King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 20, great example of that. Number three is fear. We become angry when we're fearful, especially when our future is threatened. Everyone is created with a, a God-given inner need for security. Um, when you begin to worry, when you begin to feel threatened, you may become angry because of the change in your circumstances. And here's the key to that. A fearful heart, what it does is it reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals a lack of trust in God's plan over your plan. King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 18, great example of fear. And then lastly, we get angry because of our performance level. The significance that we have in our lives. God has given everybody a need for significance. And when your efforts are thwarted, when somebody's in your way, or maybe you don't meet your own personal expectations, your sense of, of significance can be threatened and it's going to cause you to be angry. Frustration, right? Frustration over all these unmet expectations. Expectations will kill us. Um, major, major source of anger, Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, once again, a great example of that. So dear friends, Jesus shows us here the severity, of, the severity of our anger. He shows us how to be forgiven from our anger. And then lastly, how we are to be free from that anger.
Amen? Father in heaven, what an amazing two verses. Thank you for teaching us what it looks like to murder spiritually, to understand the, the consequences of, of, causing, uh, of calling people names, people who are made in the image of God. Uh, Father, we do beg for your forgiveness. And we also ask that you would teach us this week to press into this issue of our own anger, that you would reveal what's really deep in our hearts, the core of our being, and, and how to deal with these things that, that spill out time to time. Father, we, we thank you and praise you for the solution to this problem of, of sin and anger, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And may we now share this amazing message of the gospel uh, with the God intersections and the divine disruptions to our schedule this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.